Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Crowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we're really lucky to have with us three out of the four co-founders of the Trainee Educational Psychology Initiative for Cultural Change Group, also known as TEPIC. Dr. Hannah Morgan, Dr. Jason Apulo Shonivare, and Yasmin Francis all graduated from the doctoral training in child community and educational psychology at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. They're all currently working as EPs across London. Hannah is working at the North London Borough of Barnet and Jason and Yasmin are currently working at Hackney Educational Psychology Service. We were so honoured to speak with them about how TEPIC was formed, their hopes and their biggest learning points from being a part of the TEPIC group for over two years. You'll notice at the end of the episode that we enjoyed speaking to Jason, Yasmin and Hannah so much that we lost track of time. We hope to have the co-founders of TEPIC back in the near future. Please get in touch with us via Twitter to let us know any questions you wish we had asked and still like us to think about together. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone. It's really nice to have some of the co-founding members of the Trainee Initiative for Cultural Change, which some people know as TEPIC. Um, so a big welcome and we're really happy to have you and I guess it will be kind of nice to start a little bit about kind of your experiences and you know how TEPIC kind of came to be together. Thank you for having us first of all it's really nice to be here I'm here with my colleagues and co-founders say I'm Jason Apalu Shunibare I'm an ed- educational psychologist in the field for a year and a bit now that's me. Hi I'm Hannah Morgan and I'm newly qualified this summer. Hi, I'm Yasmin Francis, and I have also just finished the course this summer. Thank you, guys. Um, so, yeah, we we are all TAVI trainees. I'm very proud of it, I remember from, from what I remember. But one of the things that we were very mindful of was, like, how much the course content was very eclectic and diverse. There was so much that was offered at the TAVI, and I think we really enjoyed this idea of being part of a, a community which speaks to try and unpack you know, there's kind of like breaking down of who you are and then building you back up again. So I do have a sense of pride in that sense, but I also recognise that perhaps there were some areas of my training that I wondered if I could have benefited from more input. And I didn't know where I would go to get that input. So it wasn't like quite obvious. Um, I think our lecturers did an amazing job of the course and modules that we had, broadly speaking. <laughs> but also as a, as a black man, and I, th- I guess that's kind of relevant to the story, I kind of started in the course with a lot of questions about sense of belonging, like who else was who else was around that looked like me or came from a similar background to me or could relate to a little bit of my journey in the ways that I have, my shit, my lived experience. And there weren't many people who I could say or who I came across. That all being said, there were some organizations that existed that offered quite useful ways to think about what training to be a psychologist and educational psychologist could encompass. And one of those was the BEEP network. In the context of what they were offering, it was a UCL-based initiative. And I think it was mostly targeted for 
main grades who were who were black or, or connected with the black community in some way and felt like they could attend meetings. There was one it was in person most of the time and it was often at UCL where you would go and they would have really helpful topics. I remember one was about culturally responsive supervision uh, put on by two colleagues of ours from the Southampton courses and their effort was to try and help people to feel like their supervisory space was one where the topic of culture, race, equity, power, that was a, a fair place where you could have those kind of discussions. And it really impacted me that those kinds of conversations were happening somewhere in the profession. So, um, Thanks, Jason. It's really nice to remember, actually, and kind of go back to that point in time. And I really remember going to the BEEP events and just how much I felt like I gained from those as, as sort of really reflective spaces and introduction to new content maybe that that I hadn't sort of received so far but I also remember some really difficult conversations which um, at that time the Beep Network most of the people who attended the events that I went to they were already qualified and um, I remember some really hard conversations about how they felt their training experience had been and particularly you know I think also we should mention the timing of things so Tepic, we did. We founded Tepic just after George Floyd's murder, and all of the conversations that were happening at that time. Yeah, I, I really remember some conversations within Beep uh, events that we attended around people's training experiences, how difficult they'd found it, and also the, I suppose the the wish to decolonize the training curriculum. So I think all of those ideas really fed into the conversations that um, Jason and Yasmin, uh, Mikel and myself started to have when we wanted to start Tepic off. I, th- I think you guys have summarised it really well. I do think that the timing and attending the Beep Network events were brilliant, but we did kind of go, actually, our needs are different here as, as trainees and wanted a bit of that like trainee network and that reflection back to universities to kind of say, actually, here we are as trainees and, and this is what we want and need from the course so I think it all did yeah come together quite well we probably should mention Mikhail Johnson who is the other co-founder but not able to be here today so the four of us yeah got together and spent a lot of time thinking about mission statements and aims and really kind of fine-tuning what we wanted to do and that was whole summer of 2020 we'd meet every yeah couple of weeks and and go through it again and reword things and really thinking about like the language we wanted to use even coming up with a name we were kind of like oh we wanted to be wider towards cultural change rather than just having race in our name which we all think is really important but we really wanted to create that kind of cultural shift so all of the language from the name to the mission statement of names, we spent a lot of time, yeah, thinking about things like that, um, which felt really useful. And I think was a really great experience for us to kind of spend so much time thinking about these things. It's making me think about the and how little we seem to recognise those that have come before us and have made such a significant contribution that things don't start out of nowhere. And it, it does sound like that beat meeting gave some sort of impetus for you guys to be able to sort of come together I noticed actually, as you were saying, Hannah, kind of some of the, I would imagine, quite profound difficulties that people had experienced in their own initial training and you being in initial training and not to minimise for any of you, actually, it wasn't like those difficulties had necessarily gone away. One of the thoughts that I had around what you were saying, Emma, was this idea of um, the courses being 
for so many people a monumental and pivotal and life-changing event right i think for most people who try to get on the ed psych training it's it's a very large part of their life that they commit to trying to get on and then once you're on you feel like gosh i've made it you know i'm on a career path now i'm I'm set uh, to a certain extent you've made it through the bottleneck as it were and you've been selected <laughs> so that that feeling of being selected um of the the few that make it past the um the selection process stage it is really affirming you do feel really confident and competent as a as a practitioner but about to start as a student i, I suppose for me and i think a few colleagues who i've spoken to anecdotally <laughs> it was a rude awakening is the, is the politest way I could think about saying it. in that I think getting on the course is a massive massive deal and absolutely you should ce- celebrate that but staying on the course is a whole nother ball game that is often not talked about sometimes it's romanticized what the experience is and can be in that sense then and again and I noticed this in open evenings where I would be asked to speak to potential or prospective tips and I found myself holding back and not being as authentic as I wanted to be because I didn't want to dissuade or or minimalize what it means to get onto the course so then but then to have negative experiences particularly as me who I am I didn't know if that was my own personal journey and that I, everybody else was like having a wonderful time I, I knew we were all workload heavy but to, to meet a group of people who could talk about some of the reasons why life was hard as a tech and to think about some of those in a more broader sense than just the the interpersonal and personal level it was found like it was really good to hear and, and kind of find my kinfolk within the profession and of all different skin colors, but people who could understand that there were deeper levels of meaning as to why some struggled more than others. And it wasn't a personal thing necessarily. There were aspects of the system that would have a profound impact on who and how often and dropout rates and all that kind of stuff, people would progress or feel confident moving through the course and ultimately qualify. And I guess ultimately as a main grade now, you know, qualified, feeling comfortable in the profession as well, it continues. So I think getting on the course, staying on the course and then progressing through the career path, sadly, and also poetically, I guess, there is a sense of recognition that there is many factors which contribute to people's feelings and confidence as they move through and into a qualified position. But a lot of that comes down to what is the culture of the, of the program? And so I think Tepic, I think all of what we were trying to do was think about this idea of systemic change, right? And that included thinking about, like we, we three, Hannah, Yasmin and I are all TAVI and we we looked long and hard at the TAVI curriculum and program. And then when Mikel joined, he's IOE, is that right? Yeah, he too was thinking about some of the ways in which he's been taught and by who and why and what questions were raised. Like even the question around how do you get to choose your research topic? And if you don't, then are you following on to some else's agenda like some of their interests and what questions get asked in the research realm and why again so yeah i think there is a sense of standing on the shoulders of giants like i think the eprcf beat um, the bip network who i was linked to beforehand as well they've been doing some great work in the industry and it's so it's so generous of them to allow us to kind of carry their names forward and think about how we can make a difference in our sphere of influence which we, we really did try and target tips and we continue to try and target tips i guess one reflection I have is should it be down to trainees like yourselves collectively coming together on a voluntary basis it's not compulsory in any way to notice and attend to the gaps in a range of different ways so what's getting taught by whom for what purpose with what kind of underpinning kind of values principles and and ideologies and I think that is something I would really want to kind of come back to I I wanted to kind of 
ask a little bit first about some of the events that you have put on as TEPIC, people that you were getting and what you were covering. And I'm wondering if you would maybe say a little bit, each of you, about maybe somebody that you've had as a as a TEPIC guest or, or as an event and things that you yourselves have learned from those events and, and probably trying to link it back to this idea about what's missing for everyone if it's only left up to, I don't think it's an either or, I think it's really important for there to be kind of complementary ways of working but yeah what have you had that actually others have really missed out on because it isn't being the sort of compulsory core curriculum that's followed by everybody I'm happy to to talk about the first speaker and event that we had if that's all right so uh, it was Dr Ken Greaves and I'd worked with him um, when I worked as an assistant in Barking Dagenham and I remember some really interesting conversations with Ken about different things, but including assessments that we use. And at the time we were doing a we were doing a project where I was using a tool called the tool of parenting self-efficacy to look at parenting self-efficacy in, in new parents. And uh, we were delivering some courses there. And I remember speaking to him about this tool and saying, I feel this this is quite culturally specific, some of these questions on the questionnaire, and I'm not really sure why we're using it. And, <laughs> you know, I have some some issues with it. And and he just really encouraged, you know, me to reflect on that and, and kind of my thinking. And and so I so I remember when we kind of set up Tepic, I, I kind of thought back to, to Ken and wondered as well with his specialism. Um, he's kind of developed a specialism within the area of autism. And so Ken did an event for us um, talking about autism, culture and ethnicity. And Ken has done a lot of a lot of work within sort of different boroughs with families from different ethnic and racial and cultural backgrounds. And yeah, he, he just, I suppose, really opened our eyes in that event to some of the some of the issues to think about um, with regards to like language and cultural kind of different interpretations and, and, and meaning. And I remember this kind of came up in our teaching in year one at the Taviyama as well. I remember speaking about language and how things can be kind of interpreted or held and, and a simple change in language can can lead to a real shift in your ability as a psychologist to maybe connect or disconnect with people uh, yeah I, I mean something that stood out I remember Ken talking about is in how many languages there isn't a word for autism and when you're working with a family where that's the case how do you navigate that and um, what language do you use so yeah that was that was a really great event and we we looked at some different case studies and and it was our first event so it was really really exciting but I'll, I'll let someone else talk about one of the other ones. Thanks, Hannah. Um, so our second event was um, Professor Augustine Noye, who uh, has a lot of papers on African psychology. I found in, in his event, it was really useful to think about like the different strands of African psychology and the different methodologies that he talked about. So he talked about like a deconstructive methodology in which it's kind of that unpicking different aspects of psychology that are used in the Western world and thinking about how Africa might have been misinterpreted or kind of any stereotypes that were held in kind of mainstream bodies of psychology and how we might kind of correct them or challenge different ways of thinking and providing different narratives around kind of Africa and the way people think in, in psychology and when using psychology. It also he also kind of talked about the constructive uh, perspective and that was more building a body of research and theoretical perspectives from Africa and what really stood out to me 
was the inclusion of like culture and spirituality because I do think that's something that's not mentioned so much in western psychology and it's a huge part of some people's lives and it's kind of a, a bit that's missed that was definitely yeah a standout for me and I continue to use his work in in practice which is really useful. I remember Professor Noy talking about the African diaspora and thinking about to what extent psychologists who uh, from an African background who may be working in the UK because the event was for um, for us in the UK, feel they can recognise different parts of, of their psychology or, or themselves within the, the teaching that they access here on training courses. And we did have some messages afterwards, after that event, from African psychologists who felt this was one of the first times they'd actually felt they'd, they'd attended a lecture that that really spoke to them. And I think that felt really, really wonderful that we'd been able to provide that space and that it was amazing. He did this event for us from South Africa <laughs> in the middle of having a thunderstorm with <laughs> a time difference, you know, but that but that was the, you know, unique COVID times and we, we managed to set that up. So yeah, it was really special. I think that we we were able to put that event on with his his gracious help. Pro- Professor Nwoye, he also spoke about this idea of, um, you said it there, Yasmin, this idea of um, how spirituality is somewhat removed from the ways in which current Western approaches to physical and mental health are, are treated or addressed. And um, I think he was a bit targeted in his opinion, like his views were, he was like, and that was deliberately done. Like that was, that was an effort by a group of people with power so as to help themselves, I suppose, or the establishment, I don't know what a particular establishment I'm talking to, but a body of people with power to feel like and convince people that they are controlling aspects of the person that that are controllable, such as, you know, symptoms and traits like in-person deficits, as opposed to spirituality, which people often attribute to a more omnipotent, you know, you know, a broader thing. And I I think that was really interesting for me, this idea of um, this idea of a, a body of people who want to control people through the use of, you know, we talk about like pharmaceutical companies in this way as well nowadays. So, it wasn't it wasn't too far removed from the thinking and this idea of you know in which ways is is uh, are the politics around treatment in, impacting and affecting the ways in which professions are developing and that was like that was really profound so yeah i think a lot of what professor noe had to say mm-hmm. stuck with me and, uh, and just this idea of challenging that taken for granted knowledge, like I recognise the difficult job that training providers have to do in regards to fitting in so much into a three year course to ready people to be able to become psychologists and step into that authority and role because it's such a powerful one. You know, you're really making big decisions about people's lives and how they may view themselves from labels uh, diagnostically to to, to just a representation of their lived shared experience. It may not be shared, lived experience, sorry. And I think think it's... um, it's powerful to think about how we we really do sometimes just skip over a large aspect of what can be someone's spirituality and faith-based views of themselves and the worldview. Like it's it's massive. So yeah, I I, I was really pro- profoundly impacted by Professor Noye. And actually, I know he's trying to do some more work in the UK, and Tepic has in some ways been trying to support. Yes, and he has some amazing papers that um, what is African psychology or psychology of is is 
brilliant, but there's a whole heap of other stuff that that he has been involved in that I think is absolutely really important to try and promote. I think it's also making me think about the idea of Africa being treated as a single entity and recognising kind of in terms of the intersection between, you know, you've mentioned spirituality, kind of faith, but different parts of a huge continent that's, you know, this it's just phenomenal. Language, actually picking up on what Hannah, you were saying about how the, the place of language and how it helps us kind of construct who we think we might be and that's one place I'm also thinking of of you Zara and how the use of the term uh, Asian is used here to mean you know again a continent worth of um, cultural sameness different similarities interplays of different aspects of people and I suppose Jason's making me think again about this idea of how in a three-year training program it's not about the idea of trying to fit it in because it feels like it's like well here's psychology but we'll stick some bits on the end to do with these other things it's a really interesting isn't it question about how does one become prepared and equipped to both represent the communities that you serve understand and appreciate the communities many of whom will have nothing to do with your own personal experience or knowledge or understanding and recognize you know for for people who are training in in a big city like london how can you best prepare people to work with sameness and difference in a way that doesn't feel tokenistic and here's a little bit on this thing or that thing yeah that recognizes complexity but also can be done within three years so that somebody could go and yeah, Jason, as you say, it's a very, it's a job with a lot of power uh, that can be used in a very legitimate way in terms of taking up your authority to act in a helpful way. But there is also whether we choose to take that up or not, we can actually either purposefully or unconsciously perpetrate harm towards individuals or groups or, or to, to whole communities. Don't want to kind of divert away from the other topics that you've had. Like I know um, Ellie Sakas has come to speak with you about the culturally responsive practice tool that she's developed was also thinking about what reception you've had to these events and how engaged people have been and yeah like what sort of thoughts and to it's too much to talk about actually but yeah just some of my initial thoughts and Zara I wanted to ask if you wanted to kind of come in at this point is there anything that was going through your mind for me also being a part of Tepic <laughs> it's yeah I guess you're all evoking a lot of emotions in me and I feel really proud of being part of Tepic I feel also just in terms of like the reception that, that the that the events have received kind of the learning points for myself as being someone a part of Tepic but also being a part like just being a part of the events and watching the events and kind of the how it's impacted my practice and I guess it's just picking up on what you, you were saying about Professor Nawai and the importance of spirituality and I was thinking how much I've probably unconsciously <laughs> kind of thought about that in my consultation practice um, and how much I tend to ask questions about religion and the and the role religion plays and how it's sometimes seen as quite a protective factor for families um, when they are going through difficult and challenging times. But maybe that might not have been brought to the forefront of my mind if I hadn't been attending the event um, I guess that's what was going through my mind. I think it's so important that we are, yeah, we, yeah, like Tepic has tried really hard to kind of offer collectively a, a space for different ways of thinking. And so I was really grateful to see, really get to see my my, my cohort member, um, Ellie, delivered a wonderful um, event. And, and actually it connects so much to some of the stuff we've been talking about as we train together. So I was really pleased that that could happen. And I was just thinking about it on the other side of it, Ellie's content around cultural responsiveness in practice has been linked to a few of the colleagues that I, I mentioned before from Southampton, um, Jezreer and Yasmin, who were doing great work around supervision, but also this idea of like, 
where I'm based in Hackney Local Authority with Yasmin, we, we have been trying to implement some of those ideas. But I think, Emma, you spoke to something around this idea of, maybe it wasn't your words exactly, but in like an interrogation of yourself or like thinking about how you how you are moving through your practice as an individual practitioner, as a, as a professional, and how, how we can encompass that doing that in an authentic and genuine way. But that really does maybe perhaps for some challenge us more than others. And what I'm trying to say with that, I guess, is this idea of like um, teams auditing themselves for their culturally responsive qualities or, or whatever standards may not be outlined directly in our professional competencies and proficiencies, but we feel or values are within a team, would these are important things for us to carry forward. So I think Ellie's work has really tried to, it's begun to influence our team um, and I, I was so happy that that could could happen. That it feels like a really full circle. So I'm very grateful to Ellie and her work. And I, I think absolutely it speaks to this idea of where does it start? Where does the question start? Is it how am I going to serve this community that I'm working with that's different from me or similar to me in different ways? Or, or, or is it even? And I, this is where I'm trying to help myself to think and I guess bring others along that journey as well. Who am I in this context of this role? And who am I in in this context of the team that I'm working within. So I guess asking questions of my own identity and how that links to uh, different levels of influence and change. So yes, I'm a psychologist and I have that role, but I'm also viewed a certain way when I walk out down the street by different people for different reasons, I'm sure. I also, you know, I'm a, I'm a father and I think, you know, the way in which that identity intersects with my professional one makes me have a different view and perspective of what it means to be uh, working with children and connecting to the parental experience when I talk with them. Not to say that I couldn't be helpful if I wasn't a parent, but I do think it gives me a different layer of understanding that I that I lean on. I try to lean on as well. So yeah, I, I think I think really what I'm just trying to say is this idea of um, Ellie's research helps me to think about our team in the context of yes, we are uh, EPS who goes out into schools, even into other teams in the local authority, and we'll have conversations with them, trying to be a critical friend and support practice in as best ways we can. But how much of that is introspective? Like, How much is our team looking inward to say, we also have biases, we also have areas of um, microaggressiveness toward one another at different different lines of division? And it's not just about race, but there are other ways in which we may unwittingly or unconsciously play into and re reaffirm views of difference that aren't helpful so um, I'm, I'm mindful of that and I continue I think myself and my team I'm, I'm grateful to be at Hackney because I do feel like we try and ask some of those difficult questions. thing that you've mentioned in this uh, paper that you'd written in debate uh, which is a, a kind of a, a journal magazine associated with the Division of Education and Child Psychology of the British Psychological Society. And you talked a little bit about services who had kind of had, say, Black Lives Matter on the agenda of, of service meetings in the summer of 2020 and onwards, and that there had been different kinds of experiences that had happened. I'm just looking for the, the particular bit that really struck me about sometimes it's kind of still on the agenda but never gets spoken to and about whether there is this uncomfortable feeling that comes about from, from talking about race and therefore it just sort of falls off, doesn't get spoken to, doesn't get addressed, doesn't get talked about. And I was wondering about that idea about uncomfortable feelings in the place of training and whether you feel there's been, has that in part led to these 
curriculum gaps, the kind of ways in which things have been taught or indeed not taught, attended to, addressed? Is there fear on some level on the part of the training courses about what it might mean for staff, for example, to have to engage in and get closer to something like this? Yeah, I'm really interested just to know any thoughts on that. Yeah, I I would agree. I do think that the discomfort does cause fear and it makes it so much easier to avoid these conversations. And or if you are talking about kind of race and equity, making it outward focused and not taking that moment to go, okay, what about me and and, and reflect. And I, I do think for me, kind of the combination of the different events have helped me to work that out for myself and Ellie's framework and, and kind of the deconstructive method. I've kind of <laughs> created some kind of integration of the two in my mind. And um, I really think it is about that, how we deconstruct ourselves and like at different levels, ourselves, gr- groups as services, but also courses to break down, okay, here's what's useful and working for wider groups and for kind of uh, black and minoritized groups, but also for others. Yeah, I do think it's that deconstructing it and putting it back together in a way that's useful for everyone, rather than trying to shoehorn things in, because I do think that fear creates that avoidance and links back to actually, oh, we have to mention this right now, because it is important. We've been told it's in the BPS competencies a little bit, so it, it has to go in here. I think that doesn't create the change that we want it to create. I think that creates the, okay, we've ticked the box, it's here, we can now move on from it and we can all feel a lot less uncomfortable now that that's been ticked off, which doesn't create kind of culturally responsive practice. Um, It almost adds into the avoidance and that thought that you can just tick the box and move on from it. Yeah, I was I was just going to add that I think that's been a sort of really ongoing discussion um, that we've had in TEPIC as, as the kind of core team of TEPIC is that balance of action um, and reflection. And it's something that we also had in Hackney, um, where I trained with Jason in uh, the anti-racist working group there. I think it was a, a theme around kind of how much do we yeah, act and, you know, within TEPIC put on events or, you know, write, write a paper or, or whatever it is. And how much do we actually reflect within our core team, within our events? Um, and I think that I, I do really have to thank Jason for really sometimes slowing us down a little bit, slowing me down. I definitely feel you did um, sometimes when I would get overexcited about, you know, the next event or the next thing. Um, and I think there were a couple of others within the core team who um, I just really feel grateful that that there was this coming back to who are we as a core team? What's happening for us within our training experience, within our practice, um, within how we relate to each other as a group even? Um, and, yeah, it's been something that, is really irreplaceable in my training experience is, is having that group that we have had. And I think that even more so links back to that kind of selective nature of TEPIC because when we are an independent group and people don't have to come to events and don't have to engage with us. But I, as you said, Hannah, I definitely feel that it's impacted my practice so much um, being able to have those reflective spaces and those discussions. But it is optional and people can choose to not think about race and equity and culture and spirituality and intersectionality and all these things that have such a huge impact on individuals can be missed in in lots of discussions. 
I think, and I think that's that's mad to me. It's like it's mad to me about so in so many levels, right? It's like we're trying to we work with so much need in the community. How can you not begin to recognize that some of that need has been created and manifested as a result of direct indirect systemic uh, organizational racism clear as day and and that may be a framework that is helpful to support people in discussing the ways in which they feel they've been treated or have been treated like whether you perceive it or it's true there is a discussion there and there's a talking point around people's authentic selves their reality their, their lived experience so I think yeah this idea of being actively anti-racist is is one that I've really tried to promote and I think we try to promote but but it's not it's not everyone's stance and I think it applies to other aspects of differences as well or minoritized groups or oppressed groups you know we have to be actively and actively anti-homophobic you know there's in so many different ways we need to be actively aware of smaller less powerful groups and how they are treated and supported within the community but I think that you can if you want to turn a blind eye to this stuff and that is harmful. I think people should recognise that that adds to the problem. And 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 it's not it's not just okay to say uh, my cup overfloweth. Like I, I think everyone is. I think there's a big need there. And I say that because there there are some examples of people who not only turn away from it and you know approach it in a passive capacity, but will also target target some of the rhetoric around what it means to be anti-racist. And I'm thinking specifically about the the attack on critical race theory (CRT). Yeah. And and the ways in which like I don't know if it's the Trump era or 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 the, the maybe it's social media <laughs> I, I don't know what it is but I guess this idea around like um, professionals being dispelled for their they, they haven't got as much weight like every anyone who's got access to the internet can refute an argument or is an expert in their own right because they've done their own research like that's not me trying to <laughs> diminish this fact that, like people should go and like pursue information information is Mm -hmm. out but there is also a sense of what it means to be well versed and and dedicated to something so as to have given Mm -hmm. it a lot of thought and thinking uh reflectively as well not to just sit in that that knowledge base but like to open up and be open to learning so yeah people are approaching arguments or debates now it feels like you know even like the idea of wokeness has been discredited and people think being woke is this gen z thing but it's, it's not it's about consciousness it's a, it's so much deeper than that yeah I, I just find it very hard because like you know you step into a profession where critical thinking and reflection is such an important part of it but that requires time and space and actually there's this there's this immediate gratification era where we're where people are looking for like memes that that describe the meaning of the of life and I'm just mindful of how that can have a very negative impact on conversations and debates and people's tolerance for different opinions. Often we're just kind of focusing on uh, the echo chamber in which we exist. And that then leads yeah. to people sitting more firmly in their beliefs as opposed to being open minded and critically reflective. Mm, to me, it speaks to that idea of relationship, the importance of being able to, to say, but also the importance of being heard and then the reciprocal nature of once you've heard that you can respond and make a, but that also recognizes the impact of what we say. Feels like a, a, a fraught line, particularly in the culture of today, when things can feel so fraught of either being good or bad, right or wrong. And that kind of binary splitting to me feels and speaks to like a level of anxiety that's just present everywhere. 
and everyone's looking for certainty. This is a good thing. This is a bad thing. I feel like it gets rid of a space for uncertainty, of ambivalence, of ambiguity, of reflect. But we don't seem to find holding that integrated position particularly easy. I think like the current cancel culture adds into that because I think people are so scared of the reaction they'll receive and it being detrimental to their personal lives or their careers and Mm -hmm. it being almost career ending and that Mm -hmm. starting a fear of I I better just not say anything (laughs) and and again further avoidance away from getting into these discussions and and being able to unpick things a little bit more Mm -hmm. and that being able to sit with the unknown and kind of follow our use kind of curiosity and explore things for an individual it's difficult to do that if you're scared that what you might say might end everything or lead to huge complaints or um, have a really negative impact so I I do think that yeah that all ties together and kind of leads to further Mm. avoidance of race culture and efforts to kind of broaden equity Which I think brings me back again then to unless from the A-level psychology, like undergraduates joining a kind of a a sort of a postgraduate course, if that's educational psychology and then post-qualification, anything that happens after you in terms of your practice, your continuing professional development, your supervision, that that integration of culturally responsive practice has to be there from the very beginning. Otherwise, it just does. It can lend itself to I'll, I'll choose to get involved in this or I won't. I'll step into that or I can back out of this. Whereas if it's there from the beginning to me and integrated fully in, which is something that Zara and Ellie Sakasa have been working on in relation to consultation and, and the relational model of consultation in particular. Ellie and I had done a little bit of work about integrating the her culturally responsive practice framework into our model of consultation based on the original kind of relational model of problem solving practice framework. <clears throat> but you've really tried to introduce reflective prompts for uh, people making use of the model. We've been working on a way that allows it kind of provide some prompts to allow thinking to support people's thinking to think of where I might be where there might be a really big kind of gap in my knowledge and understanding of this culture or this person's culture or their perspective and where they're coming from um, to just kind of prompt our thinking probably most likely in supervision because it's a bit harder to do it in the moment isn't it but kind of reflect on our consultations and kind of the cultural constellations of the consultee and think about what we might do differently. We've got, there's two elements, as you said, Emma, there's an inter and an intra and an inter. Um, And the inter is supposed to provide some thinking or some scripts to help us kind of address where we might have fallen in one of these pitfalls. We've called them cultural chasms for now, that might change. (laughs) Yeah, to try and support our thinking to, yeah, to maybe bridge that uh, gap a little bit. Thinking about both the paper and and something, Hannah, that you said, and and Jason, about this idea of coming to know oneself as part of training to become an educational psychologist, are those systemic ideas about like in your paper you talked about the social graces and so aspects of identity that may be quite visible or perhaps less visible aspects of identity that may be voiced or unvoiced and how different aspects of identity can hold structural power or indeed be quite excluded. Hannah your point about language and the place language plays I guess I'm thinking about the systemic ideas that seem to be quite a part of some of the discussions that you have had and my interpretation of intra also 
includes the unconscious. So the the kind of things that we don't know that we're doing. <clears throat> and I'm wondering for you about the kind of theories that you draw on now, or or theories that have kind of come up in in Tepic for Tepic's work or your own practice more generally. One of the things I was going to say was just um I think at the Tavi you know the social graces is really woven into a, a lot of our teaching, and I think that's something that was was part of our thinking around developing a network of trainees that are from different training providers and and institutions because in in some ways I guess with three of us being from the TAVI we felt we had exposure to some theory that not everyone had and that we thought would be really beneficial so we wanted to share a bit of that but I think we also were curious about well what do what do other unis teach and is there other things that we can learn and so I, I think that the social graces has definitely come up in conversations and discussions and certainly at our events we usually uh, you kind of split them into sort of some input and then some reflective reflection time and I think in a lot of the reflective spaces that I've been in uh, people have drawn on the social graces model so it's been nice to have it have that kind of come into beyond the tavi teaching I suppose within the network another thing I was thinking about I know Zara said we could perhaps sort of recommend some reading and something that I read was it's called Racial and Cultural Dynamics in Group and Organisational Life by Mary B. McRae and Ellen Short and it's absolutely brilliant because it kind of takes some of the psychoanalytic concepts really brings light onto how race and culture come into those and and so yeah I did I sort of shared that when I found it with some of the Tepic core team and I know other people have have enjoyed reading that and thinking about how to apply that within their work as well so yeah I would say for me those those kind of theories have been really important I could add to that and just say that um being yeah I think Hannah you, you touched on it right there this idea of the, the TAVI training and how I how I connected to that so one of the words that I heard um I don't know if it's <laughs> Emma you say quite often was the both and and I linked that to lots of different aspects of the training course so for instance um the both and in the context of how how we can occupy two spaces at the same time um so we spoke about that gray area kind of the machine the black and white and i think that's really flavored my thinking in life <laughs> like this this idea of nothing is just one thing and like even in research the kind of the where you sit on the spectrum between positivist and social construct like all that kind of stuff really links for me and helps me to think about this kind of gradient radiated approach to to life and to the experiences of being human so why that works so well is because that that also connects to the inter and intrapersonal and this idea of what what happens within and what happens without or out with and the, the idea between how many ways in which we can split down and dissect and understand human behavior so but i guess when i started my research and i really found kimberly crinshaw's work on intersectionality that that really flavored uh, supported my thinking and and direction around how i wanted to conceptualize people period and and that was about us not having perhaps one identity or a, a unitary way of viewing ourselves but really the broadness and fluidity of identity and what that can mean and how people can choose to identify and then I've recently been thinking a lot about and I've been turning over these ideas of 
you know, identity can just be a group of experiences that you have that somebody else has. I, I talked about being a father, but I'm a father to a, a girl, a little daughter and a stepdaughter. So in that sense, I can connect to other men's experiences of raising young women and what that means or feels like. So I'd say I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dad, dad daughter or like this idea of like linking what it means to be that compared to the experiences of raising sons. But equally, you know, we could think about it in the context of um, political allegiances. Um, you know, so many people will identify with their football team or they'll identify with their hobby. They, these are people's lived experiences and they connect with important identities. So why I find that really interesting is because in the middle of that concentric circle with Brom from Brenner, we think about the, the factors that impact on the individual internally, how we perceive ourselves in the world and therefore navigate through it plays a massive role, I feel, in then in then thinking about the ways in which we are able to connect to the roles that we have and the power and position that that will be deemed or seen to, to wield within society. So I talked about earlier us being psychologists now uh, and, and training still and then how you know, when I walk into a school, people are oh, the EP's here, the EP's here. Like, it's not because of who I am or anything I've done in my lifetime. It's purely because of my title as a professional that that comes with a certain degree of reputation and expectation that perhaps we're going to, you know, we make these jokes about magic wands. And there, there's something to be said about the status and gravitas that the weight of that role holds. So I, I think identities and intersectionality has been a massive psychological framework, which has really informed my practice to come back to answering the question. Yeah, and I know you won't say this, but linking back to events, Jason um, is doing a, a TEPIC event on intersectionality uh, power and identity which is yeah really useful to think about but one of the things when I think about that because I, I think the things that you've both talked about huge for me as well um and I often map some of these things onto like things like Jahari's window to think about it for myself and kind of um reflect inwards and think okay have I got a blind spot here <laughs> is is there something that I'm not seeing or am I paying less attention to something within this meeting within this school within this uh, dynamic of a certain situation with different people present, does that affect how I'm interacting with these different things in this moment? So trying to do it in the moment, but also taking time to step back later and and think about it out of the situation, because it's always very different doing it in the moment to, to kind of safeguarding some time separately. And I also, with the critical race theory, trying to think about that balance between action and reflection and really trying to sit with the reflection and think about okay what am I doing why am I doing it but then moving into action and even with those blind spots thinking okay but what am I going to do about it next time what what am I going to do when you're stuck in that moment and you're in that reactive place where you're responding to lots of people in a room what can you do to check yourself and say okay I noticed this about how I interacted last time how can I, in that moment when it might be stressful and there might be a lot going on, how can I still remind myself to do this or check myself or or bring in this thing that I haven't looked at um, into the conversation? Um, so I find that really useful to think about. One thing I was wondering about is you've mentioned, actually, sorry, you were talking about the place of spirituality and having had a TEPIC event that made you think, oh, gosh, yeah, actually, that, that could be a really key way in which families come to understand maybe a child's needs or how they might address a need. I was thinking about other aspects of culture and consultation in your practice now or, or when you were training or as you are training, like Sarah is, how has it played a role in the kind of consultation relationship and times when you've kind of thought, gosh, wow, that 
really made sense in that way. I left something out or I really engaged with something or this is how this consultee has come to understand and make sense of their own experience. Any moments of of practice? Actually, in my research, this kind of issue of how important spirituality and beliefs are came up. Um, in one of the research interviews so I think again like Zara said it it you know it was something really protective really a, a, a resource for the for the participant and I suppose I felt really grateful that she'd been able to share that within you know within this research because again it's something that if your participants are all quite homogenous in terms of their beliefs or perhaps their faith or whatever it is, their culture, um, it might not really come up. Yeah, related to her faith, she had some very, really helpful, strengthening beliefs about what it meant to be a mother for her and, you know, what that would lead to in her future. And yeah, as I said, they were a real sense of resource and strength for her. And And I do wonder about, you know, how did it come about that she felt comfortable to bring that into the discussion? Um, and therefore into the research, which, as I say, I feel grateful that came in because it's quite absent, uh, very absent, actually, in a lot of the research that, that that I read, certainly. Can I just add on to that, Hannah? Like, yeah, it's so good to hear about it happening in your research, because I think it, that there was a space allowed for it to also happen in mine. Um, and it's one of those like nuggets of the research. Where I'm like, oh, that was so good because the young man who I was speaking to was um, of the Muslim faith and he was also um, a wheelchair user and had learning needs. My research was about um, ability and ableism and about race and, and racism and how those two things intersect. But when he spoke about some of his experiences, he talked about some of the people in his culture when he traveled back to his home country his origin country he spoke about how they'd said your disability is god's gift it's god's gift you, you should be grateful almost is what he interpreted that rhetoric as um and he he was angered by that he he didn't think that someone who was able-bodied for want of a better language able-bodied should be commenting on how he should perceive the current ways in which he his body is created as a as something to be grateful for he felt like they, they, they didn't have the rights because they didn't share his lived experience. And in, in that moment, it felt to me like a really good example of how intersectionality can support thinking around cultural dynamics and experiences. Because uh, for him, the expectation is that in, he felt in his culture, the expectation was that whatever you are given, whatever cards you're dealt in life, the fact that you have a life is 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 reason enough to be grateful. You should be thanking God. And and just because you're in a wheelchair, he felt the person was saying that that's, that's great rounds to, to give thanks but he, he didn't feel he didn't feel thankful and he didn't feel that anyone should be telling him to feel thankful because his life had been particularly difficult and he had been often misunderstood or mistreated um, he talked about getting stared at in the street he couldn't connect the, the the sentiment that the person was trying to share with and in that sense he he, he didn't like the idea of being told to do something that he didn't want to do by someone who wasn't who wasn't he, who couldn't connect to his experience and I guess I guess why I'm saying all that is because it, it links to this idea of um, how we approach our work and uh, you mentioned consultation there this idea of difference across uh, trying to relate to someone across difference and what we may assume of people you know like some of the ways in which we might try to appease or try to encourage people to move forward in life may feel like we're diminishing their lived experience and and doing it from a position where we can't even relate or connect empathy only takes us so far perhaps that yeah and kind of 
building on that I think like language I think that's a huge thing that I've noticed in consultation um with lots of different kind of communities and sometimes ending up acting as kind of like a, a bridge or um trying to support schools within the consultation to understand the language which is used by different members um of the con- the consultation in the way that they meant it if that makes sense so certain like misunderstandings or misinterpretations around the way language is used in different cultures and the use of different words and i think it's mentioned earlier about not having words for different things in different languages and how that can be interpreted by different people and how some people might then become um, almost uh, insulted at times by how language is used, but taking that to mean that, say, it's the parent or the practitioner in the consultation doesn't care or that they are putting negative thoughts behind it, whereas sometimes it's just a slightly different use of language and that's not what they meant by that. It just, to the the person that's hearing it uh, from the school, they may hear, oh, they don't care or they've used this really terrible word in in relation to this, but that's how they perceive the word. Often I find myself kind of bouncing between different people or groups just to kind of say, okay, what could they have meant? Or let's think about this in a different way Mm. or reflecting back to individuals okay so is this what you mean and then saying yes Mm. or no just giving that chance to say this is what I meant by the language I use because I do think we talked earlier about the kind of psychologists together discussing things we spend a lot of time thinking about language and things which is great also to recognize that that's not a luxury that everyone has so people may say things in the moment or may say things uh, in context that work for them and in a cultural setting makes sense but when it's taken out or in put in a setting with where there are lots of different cultures together it may be misunderstood so Mm. just offering opportunities to come to a similar narrative and understand the language that people are using and how they what they mean by that language in those consultations, Yasmin, as I'm kind of interested in the idea of the use of interpreters within consultation, because it's a skill in and of itself, isn't it, to have and make good use and effective use of an interpreter. It's not just sticking somebody else in the room and kind of just crossing your fingers. Have you had much experience of using interpreters in a consultation context? And if so, how has it gone? And did you feel equipped to be able to to do that effectively? So I've used interpreters quite a lot. I have worked in quite diverse areas in which there are lots of people that um, use translation support. And I found it sometimes brilliant and sometimes it goes terribly. (laughs) And I have, yeah, as I've done it more and more, I've found a few things really useful, including that conversation with the interpreter before a consultation and asking them, okay, please translate everything that's said. Please don't have kind of sub conversations and and miss things out or just translate part of something because it's what you think is the most important thing. And actually naming that with the interpreter and saying, I want to hear everything. And please tell me everything. I want to hear what's being said has been really useful because I do find at times mini conversations happen and then you're sat there like, OK, what is happening here? Are they saying something's not as important or has my question been misinterpreted? But I'm not hearing that that question about my question. But also that thought around who who's the focus there? Are we going to kind of focus on the interpreter or are we going to give the person who, who's talking, the parent, the, the practitioner, the focus, the eye contact, the body language that we use in that setting? I think it's really important to think about how we use it as a tool rather than taking away someone's voice. And it, yeah, I think having those thoughts before stepping into a consultation with an interpreter is really important. Yeah, I was just going to add quickly to that, Yasmin, because I totally agree. And that's a really helpful way of approaching is this idea of schools being pressured situation, pressure, pressure environments and that often in my experience of trying to use an interpreter the school has offered someone in the school community a staff member who speaks the language 
of the parent who I'm meeting, with, which in, in one sense sounds like a helpful cost-effective saving tool uh, technique, but I think can lead to some challenges as well because of uh, some of the ways in which that parent may feel having to share quite personal, perhaps quite sensitive information in a space that we've asked for and encourage that sharing uh, with a member of staff who perhaps is is local to the school community, perhaps, or, or is connected in some other ways that the, it's not an interpreter who signs a sheet, a timesheet, and then leaves and feels quite removed. But, but also this idea of interpreters arriving who, who are you know, some, some cultural communities in London are quite small. And so there may be this feeling that you may not want to share your story with someone who could also have links to other aspects or areas of your community. And, and that might feel quite a vulnerable position or quite a, a disclosure. And that can all happen from an initial gl- glimpse from the parent outside of the door to the interpreter in the room. And we, we may not have even experienced or realised what's happened. And then we see or sense some tensions or holding back or, a, a you know, a very superficial meeting. I think also about just giving time. If you're using an interpreter, as you say, Yasmin, in a, in a tool as a tool capacity, um, it's going to require more time. But if we and the school feel pressured to get this consultation done and, and gather as much information as we can. We may not we may not achieve what we want in the same hour that we would give to a typical consultation where everyone's speaking one language. And I think that's a, yeah, that's something I've noticed as well. So adding a bit more time. With that time, holding space for the interpreter in the meeting. Um, I've noticed sometimes, like I say about sub-conversations between the interpreter and the person who um, requires that support, but also by people who speak English, kind of not waiting for that conversation to be interpreted, um, which again pushes that person out of the conversation and and doesn't allow them to fully engage in that. So I do think that time factor, Jason, that you mentioned is is huge time and that space for them to be fully part of the conversation. And, and also those principles of attunement and like care and support. Like if, as we've often probably all had, parents become understandably uh, emotional or tearful in, in the space how does how does you or anyone else comforting them in that space play out when you can't speak the language uh, their language or they can't understand you, yours and I think um, I, I, yeah <laughs> I'm just mindful of that because yeah already people may feel there are boundaries or barriers to how we connect and then that layer of language um, and that layer of one step and then two steps to hear what I've just said and hoping that it is what I've just said can can feel especially difficult when you're talking about you know a child's needs and a parent's journey with that child's needs to to get to a place of feeling better about it. It is also making me think about the cultural issue around um, displays of emotion and potentially being quite shaming to be obsessed or in or the complete opposite. But the sh- the sort of discomfort is held by I don't know somebody else within the consultation that they're not comfortable with say somebody being like crying or obsessed and how that can then play a role in how I suppose comfortable or uncomfortable we are about managing it never mind the language issue about how might we address it there's also the kind of fundamental part of how able am I to tolerate the fact that somebody is distressed and is this considered to be appropriate that you should bring this kind of part of yourself to something or where where is it permissible to share these kinds of things? It does make you realise yet again, you know, this idea of consultation being a chat and how it is a conversation, but actually it's it's something that requires a very skillful person to be able to hold all of this stuff in mind 